Hello, and welcome to the Mormon History Podcast. Bonus Episode 8, Potter Christ and Walla Walla Jesus. Before I begin today's bonus episode, I wish to make an announcement. The next full episode, beginning with the Great Apostasy, will not be released until next week. It is a delicate subject, and I want to make sure that it's good. I expect to release it next week, but if there are any more delays, I will let you know. So when I started the Mormon History Podcast, I made a t-shirt with a big old MHP logo. Recently, while I was attending the Mormon Miracle Pageant in Manti, Utah, I came across a woman who was shocked that I could study Mormon history and still be a faithful member of the church. She began to list off all the strange and dark moments in the history of Mormonism. I tried to talk to her, to tell her my side, but she wouldn't have it. I feel sad that she felt that she had drifted so far from her faith, and I was disappointed in her lack of civility and understanding. What I wish I could have told her was that every church, every country, and every life has strange and dark moments. In this podcast, I intend to cover these moments, some of which are taught in Sunday school, others are taught at Brigham Young University, and some that aren't being taught within Mormon circles. Why? Because it's history. History deserves to be told, whether or not it's comfortable. I do not wish to make anyone uncomfortable with their history or heritage. In fact, I want people to embrace history, recognize mistakes, falsehoods, and evil doings for what they truly are, so that we might not repeat them. History is meant to instruct, to educate, and, I think, to protect the future. So today's bonus episode is about two of these strange chapters in Mormon history. But before I begin, let me give some context for what we're going to talk about. In 2007, the Daily Mail conducted an interview with David Shaler, a British ex-MI5 officer. Shaler, dressed all in white, told his interviewer that he, Shaler, was a reincarnated Christ. He said that he remembered being crucified and claimed that his ankles and wrists were funny-shaped because of the nails that had been bashed in. He told the Daily Mail that he could affect the weather, prevent terrorist attacks, and influence football results. That's soccer for my American listeners, just to clarify. He earns a living giving conspiracy theory talks. He also told the Daily Mail about that his miraculous powers didn't work while he was drunk but that he does have religious experiences while he smokes his daily cannabis and when he takes magic mushrooms. According to Shaler, his past lives include George Washington, Pythagoras, Socrates, Leonardo da Vinci, Mark Antony, and Lawrence of Arabia. His former girlfriend, Annie Macon, claimed that he suffered from a mental breakdown after a long battle with MI5. At the same time in Australia, Alan John Miller also claimed to be the Jesus of Nazareth through reincarnation. With his lover, Mary Luck, whom he proclaimed to be the reincarnated Mary Magdalene, he founded a new religious movement called Divine Truth. Miller told the British magazine this morning that he was in a state of at-one-ment with God, and that God could perform miracles through him, but that his current state was not developed enough for such miracles to occur. Miller has had some predictions that he disclaims as opinions and feelings about the end of the world, saying that the John Cusack movie 2012 was very similar to the events that would occur between 2011 and 2013. He also claimed that a 100-meter tsunami would hit Australia, and that a new continent would rise up next to Hawaii, causing devastating earthquakes, 
changing the face of the land. While Miller refutes the accusations of him forming a cult, a 2013 article by Matt Siegel in the Sydney Morning Herald reveals that Miller's disciples sent hostile emails to the author after he interviewed Miller and challenged his, his, his claims. Miller and his partner, known as Jesus and Mary, continue to hold seminars in Queensland, Australia. People like Miller and Shaler may have what psychologists call the Messiah Complex, a state of mind in which individuals believe that they are or are destined to become a savior. Messiah Complex is not a clinical term nor a diagnosable disorder. People throughout history have reportedly had a Messiah Complex. Anne Lee of the Shakers, David Koresh for the Branch Davidians, and Sun Myon Moon of the Unification Church are just some examples. Some of these people created dangerous cults, and, uh, and some lead peaceful churches or movements. There are Christians, Jews, Muslims, and people of all faiths claiming to be the chosen one. Mormonism is not exempt. Today, we will examine two men claiming to be the chosen ones. Arnold Potter was born in Her Herkimer County, New York, in 1804. He married Elmira Smith at age 19. By 1835, Potter had moved with his wife and children to Switzerland County, Indiana. Mormon missionaries found them four years later, and the Potter family was baptized on November 10, 1839. When spring came, the family moved from her Indiana home to Nauvoo, Illinois. On April 24, 1840, Potter was ordained to the office of elder in the Melchizedek Priesthood by the Prophet Joseph himself. You can see the license that records Potter's ordination in the Joseph Smith Papers. It was written by Hiram Smith, Joseph's brother and scribe. When looking up information on Arnold Potter on Google, just be aware that a portrait of Brigham Young will show up instead of a picture of Potter. Potter received his patriarchal blessing from Joseph Smith Sr., father of the prophet and patriarch of the church, before moving to Sand Prairie, Iowa, where he presided over the church there. In 1845, after the prophet died, Potter was ordained to the office of 70 in the church. Three years later, he joined the pioneers heading west towards the Great Basin. He settled in Utah Territory, staying there for eight years. In 1856, he moved to the burgeoning Mormons colony in San Bernardino, California. Now, the colony began in 1851 when the Rancho San Bernardino was bought by Mormon colonists. The county was formed in 1853 from parts of Los Angeles County. The Mormons irrigated the land, creating a produce and lumber industry that supplied much of Southern California. The Mormons gained a grand reputation for their hard work. Potter arrived a year before the city was officially incorporated in 1857. Most of the colonists were recalled by Brigham Young in that same year because of the escalating Utah War. The Mountain Meadows Massacre, which I plan on covering extensively in a future episode, and which occurred on September 11, 1857, soured the Californians and the national opinion of the Mormons. While some Mormons tried to stay in San Bernardino, most returned to Utah, and a real estate consortium from El Monte in Los Angeles bought most of the lands of the old rancho and of the departing colonists. A year before the Utah War broke out, Brigham Young issued the call for Arnold Potter to serve a mission to Australia. This is where things got interesting. During his mission in Australia, Potter reportedly underwent a purifying, quickening change, whereby his own spiritual body, called Christ, entered into his body and became Potter Christ, son of the living God. 
at least according to his own account. He wrote a book that he said was dictated to him by angels, a book by which he claimed all mankind would be judged at the Judgment Day. After only a year in Australia, Potter returned to California, new book in hand. A Mormon account in the LDS Church Archives under Manuscript History of the San Bernardino Settlement reads, quote, Wednesday, 21st, October, 1857. Arnold Potter, who calls himself Potter Christ, appeared in our streets today with a brand on his forehead which had been put in with India ink. The words which can be read at quite a distance are, Potter Christ, the living God, morning star. To the right of the inscription is a star below a cross. He appears very desirous of winning followers. It is said there are several apostates about to join him, end quote. Potter gained a small following and left California, intending to settle near Independence, Missouri, a very important location in Mormonism. It is a future site of the New Jerusalem, or Zion. Instead of settling there, Potter ended up in southwestern Iowa, in Mills County, by 1861 and the outbreak of the American Civil War. Potter and his followers were far away from the conflict, however. Unfortunately, the town they settled in was destroyed by a flood in 1865. He moved his followers north to Council Bluffs. A soldier passing through the town two years prior left the following description of the place. Quote, At Council Bluffs, our arrival was greeted by a few rounds from the old six-pounder, while the streets were lined with a curiosity-seeking class of humanity, among which could easily be traced the physiognomy of bipeds of almost every clime. Here, all here to make money. The cute Yankee whittling out wooden hams to sell to Pike's Peak immigrants. The Chatham Street peddler with his stock of oat clothes ready to swear that he had the manufactured expressly for his western trade. The mock auctioneer, the jeweler with his pinchback jewelry of all kinds, horse and mule jockeys, gamblers, thieves, assassins, and the mischief knows what not, rather than what is, all congregated in this little seven-by-nine city, stuck in a grand, great ravine, three miles from the Missouri River. When you understand that this is a great interpot for immigration across the plains, you will readily comprehend that this is a good point at which to take stranger in, and it was done almost every day. Our stay at Council Bluffs was very short, two days, and I think no one was sorry to leave it." End quote. Council Bluffs wasn't the kindest of towns, but Abraham Lincoln chose it to be the starting point for the Transcontinental Railroad. Arnold Potter became somewhat of an oddity, as he took to wandering the streets of the town in a white robe. His few but devoted followers wore black robes and didn't bother grooming themselves. They would hold prayer meetings, which usually culminated in Potter receiving some kind of revelation. In 1872, he announced that his, the time had finally come for his ascension into heaven. He led his disciples to the top of the bluffs, riding upon a donkey. He probably said some final words to his devoted disciples and then leapt from the bluffs. Instead of ascending into heaven like he thought he would, Arnold Potter fell to his death. His followers were baffled and mournfully collected his body and buried it. The Church of the Potter Christ ceased to function after the death of their leader. Arnold Potter left behind a pamphlet called Revelations of Potter Christ. It is a quick read and describes the beliefs and prophecies of the Potter Christ. He predicted that another war would occur after the Civil War, which would be shorter but much more terrible, which would involve the question of the annexation of Cuba, relations with England and Ireland, 
and an invasion of Canada. He claimed that Ulysses S. Grant would be the last U.S. president democratically elected. He prophesied that the U.S. would be the first nation to fall before the millennial kingdom of God could be established. He also left a message for the Latter-day Saints, telling them to watch for Zion to be redeemed in Jackson County, Missouri, or Independence, on August 14, 1870. Quote, My solemn advice to the Mormons, even those that have lands there that, that they claim, is to stay away and let Father Adam, the Shiloh, redeem their lands by judgment from heaven. But if they will go, after I have warned them, they do it at the peril of their own lives. End quote. There are a lot of things prophesied in Potter's revelations, and I will provide a link to the PDF of his pamphlet to sh in the show notes. Around the same time, on the other side of the country, another Latter-day Saint schismatic group was practicing under the direction of William W. Davies in Walla Walla, Washington. Davies was born to a Methodist family in 1833 in Wales. He was baptized into the Mormon Church in 1847. In 1854, he emigrated to Utah Territory. In the aftermath of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, in which the Mormon settlers attacked and killed a wagon train of non-Mormons, Davies became disillusioned with the church, opting instead to follow the schismatic leader, Joseph Morris. Morris was, himself, an English convert, who in 1857 claimed to receive revelations naming him the seventh angel of the, from the Book of Revelation. He wrote to Brigham Young seeking recognition. When Yen ignored his letters, which continued through 1860, Morris began to collect followers of his own. In February 1861, Morris was excommunicated. His followers, the Morrisites, were organized in April 6, 1861, into the Church of the Firstborn, gathering to the abandoned three-acre Kington Fort on the Weber River. Within three months, the membership grew to 300. By the spring of the next year, the food was running out, and some Morrisites were becoming discontented. Morris would designate certain days for the second coming, but those days came and went uneventfully. With each failed prediction, more and more Morrisites would leave the congregation. Contentions arose over property entitlement as people tried to gather their things from the community pool that they had contributed to. Three men who felt that they were cheated vowed revenge on Morris and his dwindling congregation. They seized a load of wheat en route from Keenton to Kaysville. The Morrisites sent, sent men after them. The three were captured and held prisoner. One escaped, but two remained imprisoned. Their wives petitioned the territorial government for assistance. The Chief Justice of Utah Territory, John F. Kinney, heard their pleas and on May 24, 1862, he issued a writ of habeas corpus demanding the release of the prisoners. When the Morrisites refused, Kinney asked the acting governor, Frank Fuller, to activate the territory militia. On June 12, 200 armed men departed Salt Lake City for the fort, 30 miles or 48 kilometers to the north. By the time it reached the settlement, the army had grown to somewhere between 500 and 1,000 strong. Meanwhile, the Morrisites barricaded themselves in the fort. Robert T. Burton, the commander of Territory Militia, sent them an ultimatum, give up the prisoners and surrender, or be forced to by cannon and by rifle. Burton and his army prepared to lay siege to Kington Fort. Morris received the ultimatum but did not respond within 30 minutes. Two warning shots were fired, the second of which ricocheted off the ground into the fort, killing two women. Some returned fire, killing a 19-year-old soldier, the only non-Morrisite casualty of the war. On June 15th, 
Burton entered the compound with a small contingent and was approached by Morris in a way that seemed threatening. Burton shot and killed Morris. A melee ensued in which two more Morrisite women were killed. Burton took 90 men prisoner and marched them back to Salt Lake City to await trial before Judge Kinney. William Davies sought refuge with a number of Morrisites to Deer Lodge County, Montana. There, he had a series of revelations instructing him to establish the Kingdom of Heaven near Walla Walla, Washington. In 1866, he and 40 others moved there and set up a communal society on 80 acres. In the compound was a Davies brick residence, as well as a temple or central building for meetings, a school, and a variety of more humble homes. There was also a main barn. Men and boys of the Davies community wore their hair long as a symbol of strength. Davies claimed the ability to cure disease and prevent death, to lay down his own life, and to resurrect himself. Davies believed in reincarnation and taught it to his followers. He taught that he was reincarnated ar Archangel Michael, his past lives including Adam, Abraham, and David. Davies claimed the power to raise the dead. His fifth son, Joseph, was announced at his birth in 1866 to be the reincarnation of John the Baptist. In 1868, his son, Arthur, was born. Davies declared him to be the reincarnated Jesus Christ. The child came to be known as the Walla Walla Jesus. Davies' community doubled in size, with converts from San Francisco, California, and Portland, Oregon. A year later, Davies' seventh son, David, was born. Davies declared that this son was, a, was God the Father. Missionaries were sent abroad to proclaim Davies' gospel. The Kingdom of Heaven, as Davies' community was called, began to collapse in 1880, when both Arthur and David died of, dip of diphtheria. Davies was sued by his followers and lost. The kingdom's property was sold, bringing an end to his communal society. When it was officially disbanded, the kingdom of heaven in Walla Walla had 43 members. Davies set up camp on Mill Creek and tried to revive his kingdom, but he gave up and moved to San Francisco. He returned to Walla Walla shortly before his death in 1906. The buildings on the kingdom of heaven compound were removed and the land became open farm ground. Thus ended the saga of William W. Davies and the Walla Walla Jesus. This has been a bonus episode of the Mormon History Podcast. Thanks for listening.